your mom? Don't you think that that's weird? There might be a problem? With my mom and dad's relationship? Yeah! What? They love each other more than we do! Yeah! I brought you your hat! No, honey, I didn't mean it that way. It's a huge compliment. Come on. You gotta understand. Get to the side of my car, man. <laughs> Dusty, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Welcome to Hope, everybody. My name is Scott Rains. I'm one of the pastors here today. We're going to be talking about confessing our sins. And so, of course, we start off with a clip from the deeply theological film, Daddy's Home 2. The, the first one was so good, they had to make a sequel. Um, I love these movies. They're ridiculous. I find them hilarious. And, and I think ultimately they, they do a really sweet job of exploring the challenges of relational life. Um, we all come from a family. Each of our families has a system and there are things about our family systems that are strengths and things about our family systems that are weaknesses. And the, and the more we kind of explore and pay attention to the way relationships worked or did not work in our families of origin, the more that can help us grow into healthier patterns of relating to one another in the relationships that we are part of today. And so in these films, they kind of revolve around uh, Brad, played by Will Ferrell, and Dusty, played by Mark Wahlberg, as they navigate the turbulent waters of family life and blended family life and relational life in general. That scene that we started with, to me, uh, is a picture of why some of us are a little hesitant, uh, maybe uh, resist the idea of confessing our sins, because confession hurts. Confession can be painful. I mean, when we get to a point in our lives where we have to humble ourselves and admit that we did something, that, that we said something that caused hurt and pain in the life of someone we care about, that doesn't feel good. And so over the course of our lives, many of us develop patterns to help us avoid having to say, I'm sorry. We will lie to ourselves, we will lie to others, we'll lie to God, all in an effort to make sure I never have to say, I'm sorry. In 1982, the band Chicago uh, released a song that quickly rose to number one on the Billboard charts. The song title was Hard to Say, I'm Sorry. Twelve years earlier, in 1970, there was a movie that was this romantic drama that became a smash hit, nominated for seven Academy Awards. The movie's called Love Story, and the tagline of the movie says, Love means never having to say you're sorry. I think sometimes we forget Jesus was part of a family. Jesus had parents, he had siblings, he had extended family. One of Jesus' brothers, a guy named James, ends up being a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. He writes one of the books of the New Testament. 
I want us to read together what James thinks about saying, I'm sorry. We'll put it up on the screen, James 5.16. I'll read this out loud with me. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Relational hurt and pain is a given. You're not going to make it to the end of your life without experiencing relational hurt and pain. You're not going to make it to the end of your life without causing relational hurt and pain. And so James, the brother of Jesus, is doing something really important and helpful in this verse when he makes a connection between confession and healing. Confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. I don't know what hurts, I don't know what wounds you've brought with you, carried with you into worship today, but you need to know there's a God who can do something about it. There's a God who has the power to heal you. There's a God who has the desire to heal you. When you have a physical hurt, a physical pain, and it gets so bad that you decide, I need to go to the doctor and get some help, one of the first things the doctor is going to do is ask you, where does it hurt? Because as you figure out, as you identify the source of the hurt, the source of the pain, then you can develop a plan for how do we heal this? How do we make the pain go away? Part of the problem when it comes to the healing work that God wants to do in our lives is many of us think there's something virtuous, there's something holy about insisting, I have no pain, I I have no hurt, I have this protective shield and nothing can penetrate. We're we're like the the black knight in Monty Python in the quest for the Holy Grail. Remember that scene where the black knight is blocking the road and won't let them uh, get through and so there's a fight and the opponent of the black knight wins. <laughs> like cuts off one arm of the black knight, then the other arm, then both legs, and he's just this bloody stump saying, tis but a flesh wound. I've had worse. And I think a lot of us, over the course of our lives, we develop these strategies that help us ignore the hurt and pain that, that we've experienced and the hurt and pain that we've caused. Last couple of weeks, we were looking at the letters written by Peter, Uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples. Today we start looking at some of the letters written by John, another one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, They're they're very close. And and it's important to remember some of these things. John, it's Peter and John, when Mary goes to the tomb on that first Easter morning and discovers it's empty, then she goes to tell the guys who are scared and hiding out. Um, Peter and John are the two that run to the tomb. They see, they are eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. John, uh, when... Uh, doubting Thomas is putting his fingers in the nail holes in Jesus' hands and in Jesus' feet. John's in the room where it happened. John's in the room on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit gets poured out. John receives the power of the Holy Spirit. He begins proclaiming that Jesus is alive. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior and Lord. John writes the Gospel of John. He writes these three letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He gets the vision that becomes the book of Revelation. John is sometimes referred to as the disciple Jesus loves. And as he begins this letter of 1 John that we're looking at today, he reminds us, I saw the resurrected Jesus with my own eyes. I touched the resurrected Jesus with my own hands. He says this in verse 5, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. One time Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light that leads to life. 
So part of what it means for us to, as, as followers of Jesus, as we're walking in his light, part of what it means is we have to learn how to confess our sins, how to acknowledge the hurt, uh, the pain that uh, we have caused to others, how to acknowledge and talk about and invite God into the hurt and the pain that others have caused us. If we try to be tough, if we say it's just a flesh wound, yeah, maybe it hurt initially, but I'm over it now. Or if we refuse to say I'm sorry. If when people call us out and say what you did, what you said, that, that was really hurtful and our response is, well, I, I didn't intend it to hurt you. It wasn't my intention. If we refuse to take responsibility for the ways we cause relational hurt and pain, we're not living in the light. We're living in darkness. And there's all sorts of good, helpful ways that the light of God's love gets shined into our relationships that can lead to healing. But oftentimes, because we're not really good at this confession thing, the, the way our hurt and pain gets revealed, it actually comes out kind of sideways, and it, sometimes it makes things even worse, and, and more pain, and more relational separation. And that gets us back to the cinematic masterpiece that is Daddy's Home too. Here's the, uh, here's the family tree. We start off with Dusty and Sarah. They are married. They have Megan and Dylan as their kids, and then they get divorced. Sarah gets remarried to Brad. Dusty gets married to Karen, who has a daughter, Adriana, from a relationship with Roger. Uh, Dusty, his father is Kurt, played by Mel Gibson. Brad's dad is Don, played by John Cleese. In the first film, it's really about how can Dusty and Brad, as co-dads, uh, as step-parents, how can they figure out how, how can we get along with each other in a somewhat healthy way? How can we learn to respect each other, maybe even grow to love each other? And of course, because it's a comedy, over the course of 90 minutes, they figure it out and everything ends happily ever after, right? The, the new movie starts, the second movie, and everything is going so great, they decide, how about we spend the holidays together? We, we'll rent a house, uh, a, a cabin in the mountains near uh, a ski slope, and it's a house big enough that everybody can be under the same roof for the whole holiday season. It does not go well. Some things get brought into the light. Take a look. Do you let the kids touch the thermostat at your house? What? No. The thermostat is a sacred 
covenant. I can't believe we're even talking about this. This is madness. Oh, you got even Brad's got his house in order. Hey, you got no right to talk, all right? It wasn't hard to keep me away from the thermostat once you shipped me off to military school. Kurt, you didn't. He was out of control. He was a bedwetter. I was a bedwetter. Were you a bedwetter? I was four years old. <laughs> I may have wasted a little bit of time this week looking for clips from <laughs> this film. Oh, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. John writes, and as you keep reading, in verse 7 he, he writes, If we're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we're living in the light, we have fellowship with each other. I'm guessing, uh, as you watch that, it's pretty clear Brad and Dusty what they're longing for, they're longing for fellowship in, in the family. But something's missing. Uh, fellowship is a, a funny kind of church word. I don't know that we ever really use the term fellowship anywhere but church circles. And, and part of the way we talk about fellowship in our American church world, we've reduced its meaning. We, we've minimized it. Uh, the church that I grew up going to when I was a kid had a lot of rooms. We had the sanctuary. It was the biggest room in the church. We had Sunday school rooms and a nursery and offices and kitchen and bathrooms. The second biggest room in the church I grew up going to is called the Fellowship Hall. And in a lot of uh, small town, rural, Midwestern churches, the Fellowship Hall is in the church basement. And so you've got these uh, support columns and support beams that you have to set up the tables and chairs around to try to squeeze in and fit, whatever. Here's what I remember happening in the fellowship hall in the church that, that I attended growing up. Uh, wedding receptions. And after, until I was uh, graduated from college, I had never been to a wedding that wasn't in a church and then the reception in the fellowship hall. And, and there wasn't a dance, there wasn't a meal. Uh, the receptions in the fellowship hall, you had cake and you had mints. <laughs> when did we stop doing mints? Start doing mints again, people. And we had peanuts, and we had punch. That was it. And we spent a lot less money on wedding receptions when I was growing up. The other thing I remember happening in the fellowship hall was potluck dinners. So about once a month, on Sunday, everyone was invited to just bring your favorite dish. They'd line it up on these tables. And what I loved about potlucks, when you're a kid, you do not have control over what goes on your plate. Somebody else fills your plate for you, and then you have to eat whatever they put on it. But when it's potluck Sunday, you get the power, and you get to decide what's going on on that plate. And what I loved were the people who said, I'm not going to make anything for the potluck, are you kidding me? And instead, they would bring a bucket of store-bought fried chicken or a, a pizza from Casey's, and that's what I would fill up my plate. At the end of the uh, potluck line was always this orange drink dispenser. <laughs> and during vacation Bible school week, it was filled with grape Kool-Aid, but during potlucks, it was always just lemonade. This is fellowship. So we, we have this idea in American church world, fellowship means... We're going to get together after church and visit, and we're going to probably have something to eat and something to drink. That's fellowship. When John uses the word fellowship here, he's talking about something a whole lot bigger than that. I want to look at some examples in the New Testament where the word fellowship shows up. The Greek word is actually uh, an important theological term, koinonia is the Greek word that John uses. It shows up in Acts chapter 2. 
Uh, at the beginning of Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. The church explodes with growth. And at the end of the church, here's the description. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Again, the Greek word is koinonia. And to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. So we have fellowship and meals. A clear distinction. Fellowship koinonia is not the meal. The meal is a part of koinonia, but they're not the same thing. You keep going in uh, the book of Romans. At the end of it, uh, Paul writes this, the believers in the church in Rome have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. The word behind taken up an offering is koinonia. So in Acts, koinonia is the idea of sharing in food, but here in Romans, it's an idea of sharing. As you keep reading, it becomes clear it's not an offering of food. It's not an offering of clothing that they're sending to the poor in Jerusalem. It's money. It's financial resources. You keep reading in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, there's a different kind of sharing. Now, now it starts to become this relational sharing. God has invited you into partnership. Again, the Greek word behind it is koinonia. God's invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the word koinonia or fellowship when he's trying to describe what's happening when we take communion. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing koinonia-ing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And so what you start to see when you piece all of these together, these passages together, embedded in koinonia, it's this really huge idea Everything that is necessary for the very best kind of relationship with God, the very best kind of relationship with one another, that's the biblical idea of koinonia. And this is the word that John uses at, at the beginning of this letter. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about it. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Koinonia, fellowship, is this huge, big, important idea that this is where God is taking us. This is where God is leading us. A koinonia kind of relationship. When you look at who God is according to scriptures, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you see God exists in a perfect relational reality. A koinonia relationship is at the heart of who God is. So there's something holy about koinonia. And the more we trust God, the more we put our faith in God the Father, the more we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, God's Son, the more we allow the Holy Spirit to empower us and equip us and inspire us and lead and guide our lives, the more God is going to move us into a place where we can experience koinonia in our relationship with God and in our relationship with one another. It's part of how we grow. We grow into koinonia. So... God is light, in light, uh, in God there is no darkness at all. Part of what I hope you hear when you hear that idea, that picture, is, is God is perfect, uh, God is holy, and God's leading us, helping us grow into a place where we are more and more holy all the time, where more and more all the time there's no darkness in us, there, there's no sin in us. John talks about this idea Oops. in verse 6. 
He says we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're lying if we say we have koinonia with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. And then he kind of clarifies what he means by that in verse 8. It's on the screen. Read this out loud with me. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Part of what I, I think John is getting at here is there's a connection between who we understand God to be and our willingness or our hesitancy when it comes to confessing our sins. If we believe God is good and just, God is slow to anger, abounding in love, God, uh, God's justice is satisfied through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that, that God goes to the cross out of love for you and me. God takes our place because God is merciful and gracious and compassionate. If we really believed that's who God is, wouldn't we be lining up to confess our sins to a God like that? The problem is many of us, we are, our thoughts about who God is are a little distorted. We're not living in the truth as it relates to who God is. Too, too many of us view God like, like God is some sort of, I don't know, KGB interrogator from the 1950s or the 1960s. And we're in the interrogation room and God is just questioning and questioning. And as soon as we mess up, God's going to rejoice because he can then throw us into Siberia for eternity. What if that's not who God is? What if God isn't interested in forcing us to confess our sins or coercing us into confessing our sins? What if God is inviting us to confess our sins because God loves us? If you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 32. King David writes Psalm 32, and, and if there's a character in the Bible who has done some things and said some things that have caused all kinds of relational damage and harm, it's David. He has a lot of sin that he would like to keep in the dark, that he would like to keep secret, that he doesn't want anybody to know about. David writes Psalm 32, and it gives us a pretty good guideline for how we can practice confession in our own lives. Verse 1 and 2, David writes this, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Why should we confess our sins? David says it's going to fill you with joy. Now, the Hebrew word behind this phrase is esher, which almost always gets translated blessed. So in a lot of English translations, Psalm 32 begins, blessed are those whose disobedience is forgiven. Blessed are those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. I don't know what you think of when you think of a blessed life or the best life. Like, what picture comes to your mind? If you were living your best life, what does that look like? House on the beach? a cabin in the mountains, an acreage in rural Iowa, a brownstone in New York City, your team winning football games, I don't know what it looks like, family gathered together for the holidays. Whatever that image is that pops in, this is me living my best life. This is me when I am hashtag blessed. David's image is a little different. David says this is the very best kind of life. 
a life that is the envy of others, a, a life that uh, when I'm living this kind of life, people look at my life and say, I wish I had what he had. David says it's a life when I am absolutely aware of my character flaws. And I'm honest, completely honest about my failures. And I know I am desperately in need of forgiveness. And I have this confidence, a deep-rooted confidence that I am forgiven. That's a blessed life. You keep reading through Psalm 32, you get to verse 3 and 4. David writes, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. He, he paints quite a picture in these two verses about the effects of sin, uh, the effects of a relational disconnection with God and with others, how that infect, uh, affects our bodies. The last week we talked following Jesus is a growing experience. One of the ways that might be good for all of us to think about how can I grow in my ability to pay attention to how God's speaking to me through my body. Christianity is an embodied faith. A couple of weeks we're going to start the season of Advent. It's going to lead us to Christmas where we celebrate that God becomes a human being. God takes on a human body because there's something good, holy, sacred about the human body because this is one of the ways that God communicates to us how loved we are. So we need to, we, if we're going to practice confession, part of what David says is we have to pay attention to what our body is speaking to us. Let me see if I can give you an example to help with this. So last week, um, we were talking about high school football games, and I, I kind of told a joke about how great it feels when you know, the Catholics lose. When, when, and I, I thought the joke landed okay <laughs> in the moment. Later in the days, I was cleaning up uh, the kitchen later Sunday night, and I had this flash, this cold flash through my body, and, you know, like the feeling of your stomach's just dropping. And, and while that was happening in my body, my mind started to visualize so many people in our congregation who have this incredible foundation of faith because they grew up in the Catholic Church. And I thought, oh no, I've just offended all the Catholics. I'm going to have emails from them saying how offensive I am. So I texted uh, one of my friends from the church who grew up Catholic. I said, Andrew, just be honest with me. Let me know if when I joke about Dowling losing, if that feels gross to the Catholics in the room. And, and he texted me back really quickly, and he said, no, 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 that's not offensive. But it is offensive when you make fun of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. So, <laughs> apologies to the Catholics and the Cornhuskers in the room. I will try to be better. Uh, think about your relationships, uh, your marriage, uh, if you have children, or if your relationship with your parents. Think about relationships with coworkers and neighbors and classmates. Because the sin in our life is almost always connected to a relationship that we are a part of. And maybe, just maybe, when you are tossing and turning at night and unable to fall asleep, maybe God's trying to speak to you about some unconfessed sin, a hurt, a pain in your life that needs to be resolved, and God can help. Maybe when you sit down for a dinner and you look around the table and all of a sudden you're no longer hungry, your appetite is, go is gone. Maybe this is God communicating to you. There's a relational disconnect, a hurt and a pain that needs to be resolved, and God wants to do something about it. God wants to help. God wants to heal. 
You keep reading through Psalm 32 and you get to verse 5. We'll put it on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. I don't know what picture pops in your mind when you think about this idea of confession. Some people, their picture of confession, it's all centered on punishment. I have to whip myself on the back and I have to say, oh, Scott, what a bad boy you are. Shame on you, shame on you. That's your picture of confession. Other people, I think, the picture of confession you have is like a merry-go-round. That sometimes you get kind of overwhelmed with your guilt and you stumble into church and you're like, I'm here, God, I'm sorry. And you leave and you just fall back into the same old patterns. And then you have to come back again in a month or three and say, oh, I messed up again, God, I'm sorry. And it's just this, you're on the confession merry-go-round. What the Bible shows us is biblical confession is all about God wanting to help us grow, change us, transform us, so that more and more all the time, as we get healed, we can experience a better relational life with God and with one another. In other words, biblical confession leads to biblical fellowship. Biblical confession leads to koinonia, the very best kinds of relationships. And part of what is involved in this process of confessing is just this acknowledgement that I'm not perfect, that I have messed up, a, a willingness to say I'm sorry. Not a hesitancy around it, but a willingness to say I'm sorry because you understand there is someone who can help, someone who can heal, someone who can forgive. And this person has made a statement that they care about you, that they have your best interests in mind, the statement that they have the power and the willingness to help and to heal. The statement is the cross of Jesus Christ. By his wounds, you are healed. This is written by people who have experienced messing up, breaking relationship with Jesus, but then the power of Jesus to heal and to restore and to repair. David says, I confessed my sin to the Lord and he forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Just like that. How is God able to forgive so quickly? It turns out God has a confession to make. God loves you. God loves you. God knows everything about you. God knows your heart. God knows your thoughts. God knows when you stand up and when you sit down. God knows what you're going to say before you even say it. And God loves you. And the unfailing love of God is in passionate pursuit of you all the days of your life. Even the days when you feel unworthy. Even the days when you have convinced yourself because of what you have done and said and the hurt that you have caused, you've convinced yourself you're not deserving of God's love. Even those days when your guilt and your shame is pushing you back deeper and deeper into the shadows all the time, God loves you and the light of God's love is coming for you. Open up the windows. Let the light in. God loves you. One more clip from Daddy's Home too. Terrible holiday season for everyone involved and when they finally get to go home, they're rejoicing that they don't have to see each other again for a long time. But it's a movie, so there's a major snowstorm, and they all get stuck in a movie theater on the way to the airport. And it's crowded with all kinds of people, and tempers are short, and the kids are misbehaving, and somebody needs to do something about it. Take a look. 
Wait, 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 Roger, whoa, hold up, man. No, from now on, I don't want you anywhere near my daughter. I don't want anything to do with any of you people. Look, I never wanted to be family with you either, Roger. Just like Brad never wanted to be family with me, did you, Brad? No, not at all. I hated your guts. In fact, I, I still kind of do right now. Yeah, me too, Brad. But we're all connected by these kids. You know what, Adriana? You're not gonna like this young lady, but this is long overdue. I love you. That got me. Took me too, right? You heard me. I said I love my stepdaughter, and I meant it. I should have said it a long time ago, but I was afraid to put myself out there and risk getting rejected. You know what? Adriana, you're gonna spend Christmas with your mom, okay? You're not leaving us, Roger. Because I love you too. You take that back. Nope, you can't. You can't take it back now. Everybody heard it. It's out there. Everybody hear it? Yeah. Your dad, you made her who she is, and despite her currently harboring a fair amount of resentment towards me, I love her, so that means I love you too. And I'm never too good about saying it, but I'm gonna follow Brad's example, who I also love. Now you're just saying things to choke me up. Brad, cut out. I'm trying. I'm a hot mess here. Stop. You gotta understand when it comes out of nowhere like that. It's just, it's what do you expect? Stop. I'm stopping. I'm currently stopping. Yeah, guys, cut it out. You're embarrassing me. I love you, Brad. And I love Karen. I love Sarah. And I love my kids. I, uh... Might need a little more time with that one. Sure, understood. Well, we're making progress. And maybe for your birthday. Yeah. You know, unless you want to say anything? Anything at all? Say it, Kurt. No, now's the time. You, you, just say it, Kurt. Do you want to say anything? Do it. Do it. It's not that bad. Come on. Kurt. Say it. You can do it. Do it. No, the birthday's a good target. Good target. <laughs> Relationships are hard. Uh, the reality is we can't wrap things up neatly in 90 minutes. Uh, but we have a God who helps. Slowly, over time, things can get better. 